Welcome to the Podium and Panel Podcast. Uh, good afternoon, Your Honors. What's at the end of this case? How did this come about? Are you in the pay of the Microsoft Corporation? Start with the text of the Second Amendment. Your Honor, I, I, I think that that could be viewed as political, but that, that would be... How about the First Amendment? No, Your Honor, I don't, I don't think the First Amendment... You're out again. Still out. I think we're all in Mexico. Welcome to episode 135 of the Podium and Panel podcast. We once again have three cases today, and they're from three different uh, jurisdictions. First case today is from maybe, Indiana. Maybe four, maybe four. Maybe four. We'll explain that. It's a very interesting uh, order by the Supreme Court of Illinois last week. Our first case is the Indiana from the Indiana Court of Appeals, Indiana Department of Insurance et al. versus Jane Doe et al., an interesting case. Second case is from the Seventh Circuit. Amanda Pirner Lit Like. I think I it's Lichty. Lichty uh, versus Montreal Hobbs. And the third case today is from the Illinois Appellate Court, Second District, by way of the fourth, Rojas versus Martel. And we'll explain that uh, when we get to that case. With that, let's turn to our first case. Can a claim be made against Indiana's patient compensation fund? for negligent credentialing, where there is no causal relationship between the credentialing and the alleged conduct? That is one of the questions that will be addressed when the Indiana Court of Appeals considers Indiana Department of Insurance et al. versus Jane Doe et al. Uh, The uh, court summarized the case as follows, and as we've talked about, Indiana does a nice job at both the appellate level and Supreme Court level. They have less cases, uh, but they put up these excellent summaries of what's happened. So most importantly, neutral, neutral. They are neutral. Uh, This one, uh, this case, Jonathan Kayens is a pediatrician who was convicted of two counts of felony child molesting, one count of felony sexual misconduct with a minor and two counts of felony child seduction for his commission of sexual acts on several male teenage patients while he was employed at an anonymous hospital following his convictions, one victim and his parents filed a medical malpractice action against Kayens in the hospital. The plaintiffs reached a confidential settlement with the hospital in an amount sufficient to permit them to petition for excess damages from the patient's compensation fund. Thereafter, the plaintiffs f- filed an action in which both the hospital and Kayens intervened for additional cons- compensation from the patient's compensation fund. The fund moved for summary judgment asserting that plaintiff's claim falls outside the scope of the Medical Malpractice Act. The trial court denied the fund's motion. The fund now appeals, contending that because KN's sexual assault does not constitute an act or omission of health care, plaintiff's claim for damages arising out of the sexual assault does not give rise to a claim for medical malpractice under the Medical Malpractice Act, and consequently that plaintiff's claims against the hospital cannot be characterized as negligent credentialing under the act. The fund thus contends that plaintiff's claims do not constitute medical malpractice under the act that would give rise to a claim for excess damages against the fund. With that uh, great summary, Pat, tell us about the oral arguments in this case. Thanks, Dan. And I think it's important. We don't talk about this very much on the show, Indiana's Medical Malpractice Act. And it's really complex, and we could spend the next week trying to explain it. But in short, under Indiana law, a doctor or a medical facility 
if they are a qualified medical provider. That is, if they have, uh, they're licensed and they have sufficient amount of insurance, then they get, then there's cap on the damages that can be assessed against them. Uh, I think it used to be a quarter of a million dollars. Maybe it's been raised. And then there is an excess amount that they can get from the patient's compensation fund, which is administered by the uh, Department of Insurance. So at one time it was a million. That amount has gone up. I think it's like 1.8 million total now. Something in that range, and that's for all damages. So, uh, one, you know, I think I may have discussed this this situation previously uh, on a prior episode, but it's worth mentioning how this works. I was at a smaller firm years ago, and uh, we had a plan. We did some plaintiffs' work, and there there was a horrible piece of malpractice on a young woman who had uh, was getting radiation treatment for breast cancer, and they screwed it up. And they cooked her, for lack of a better term. The, she had two or three children, a husband, and she was in her early, late 30s, early 40s, um, and died of radiation poisoning, essentially. Uh, it was awful. Uh, and she had a very treatable form of, uh, of breast cancer. The most we could get. Pain and suffering, loss of normal life, loss of consortium with the husband, losses for the children was $1.25 billion. That was it. So because of that, the, pa- the patient's compensation fund is very, uh, for lack of a term, they protect the fund in terms of things that they don't think are covered. We've discussed this before in the, situ- the case we had where the person, uh, they administered drugs, to, a doctor administered drugs to somebody who then went and got in a car accident and then killed somebody else. And the question was whether they could sue the doctor for that and what was that covered. Um, so in this case, there's no doubt that the conduct of this Dr. Cavins is not medical treatment. Right. So the claim against the hospital, and note that Dan said anonymous hospital, because when you sue them in this capacity, you sue anonymous doctor, you sue anonymous hospital, it's not in the public, there's the whole complication. Ultimately, it can be made public, but not at, not at this stage. And the patient's compensation fund intervened and said, you don't have an underlying malpractice claim to go after us with because yes, you gave you, the claim is, is that there was negligent credentialing. Credentialing is the process by which a hospital or a medical facility gives a doctor the right to practice at their facility. And the idea is, is that because the claim is, is that they should never have credentialed this doctor. It's like, okay, what's the causal relationship between credentialing this doctor and his acts of, you know, acts of criminal misconduct, sexual criminal misconduct? How do you relate those two things? And the example that the lawyer for the fund gave is, you know, if they credentialed him and he was going to perform a heart surgery and he screwed up the heart surgery and he was a car, it was a cardiologist and we credentialed him to do cardiology and he screwed up and, we made a mistake of the credentialing and he should, never should have been able to perform that surgery at this hospital because he didn't have the qualifications or had screwed it up before or what have you. Well, there's a causal link between the, that credentialing process or the, the lack or proper credentialing and what the, the incident that occurred. I know of no credential, the argument went, that would credential someone not to have committed acts of, of uh, criminal conduct, especially of the kind alleged here. Now, 
that assumes that he didn't have a history of this. And if he did, I can't imagine he would still have a license. So right. let, let's presume for this discussion that he didn't have, he didn't have a history of this kind of conduct, at least not that anyone knew about. I mean, it's not like he woke up one day and decided to do this uh, in his in his middle age. Surely he had. It's likely that he had committed these acts before. Uh, but in any event, he, let's presume for this discussion that he. Uh, this is the first time that he had been uh, convicted of such conduct. There was no reason to know in the credentialing process that he was doing. If they did, then that's a whole different kettle of fish. But. I, I take the argument that this isn't medical malpractice and the credentialing, you know, isn't supposed to, isn't supposed to pick up this kind of a thing unless he had a history. And so then you, you, so is this, is plainly credentialing is, is, and, and, and a lack of proper credentialing is a claim for medical malpractice. But then how does this relate to an underlying uh, claim for, when the underlying claim is plainly not malpractice. And the example I gave of the cardiologist who screws up a heart surgery, plainly that's, that's uh, malpractice, medical malpractice. He's doing, he's doing something that is providing medical care. This kind of a conduct is not providing medical care. I think we had something similar last week when we discussed the uh, Carapathy case uh, right. in Indiana, whether, you know, is it covered under a policy of insurance? Uh, is there more than one? You know, it's a similar kind of an issue. Um, now on the flip side and the plaintiffs argued is he never should have been there. He never should have been in the hospital. Uh, and you let him in and he, as a consequence, uh, abused, uh, criminally assaulted this patient. And that's the cause of the injury. And you, you never should have credentialed this person. I will say if that's the case, it's going to really open up the, the, the floodgates of the kinds of claims that can be brought. Um, the, the panel seemed to be very sympathetic to the plaintiffs here. Didn't seem to be, uh, going with the fund, but you can understand why the fund is defending with these increased, these increased limits. Uh, they are becoming more active. Uh, th there was, a one of the administrators from the, um, patient's compensation fund spoke last fall at the defense trial council of Indiana conference in November, um, and spoke about them becoming more active in, in defending, what is and what is not medical malpractice. And, and, you know, this is advert. I mean, the hospital is arguing that it's covered. Uh, the, you know, the, this is, so they're somewhat, they're, they're adverse to the plant. They're adverse to the hospital. You can see they, you know, them being adverse to, uh, to the, um, you can see them being adverse to different, uh, to, to other medical professionals. You know, they're, they're trying to preserve the fund. Uh, that's their job. Very interesting case. Uh, it, it gets deep into the weeds of the statute itself and its purposes. Uh, but uh, when you have this kind of a conduct, you can surely understand why the why the hospital settled. They don't need it to be medical malpractice for them to have settled. This doctor was an employee of theirs and he committed that kind of a conduct. Doesn't matter if it's medical malpractice or otherwise, they're on the hook. Uh, so now they've so they've resolved it for as much as they could under the fund. One wonders why the plaintiffs brought it as medical malpractice. Right. Why limit yourself? Just go after the hospital and, and, and put medical malpractice to the side. Don't even argue that. That may be the result of this. Is it taken outside of medical malpractice all? Cause it's not. Okay, fine. Turn it into the curve. Now there's already been a release in this case. It's uh, uh, that's been executed, but in future cases, if it's found 
that there isn't medical malpractice. Okay, fine. Then we won't sure we won't allege medical malpractice because it's not medical malpractice. We'll just allege ordinary negligence, and you're responsible for the the, the, the conduct of this person. And that becomes a different problem because you now have to show criminal uh, liability for the criminal acts, uh, intentional criminal acts, and is that within the scope of his employment? Yada yada. But then that's where the credentialing stuff comes in, and we're right back into medical malpractice. So, uh, and around and around we go. Uh, so that may be why they did what they did. But a very interesting case. Dan, uh, uh, thoughts? I had very similar thoughts, Pat, and and uh, you know, as we've talked about many many times in this uh, podcast, a lot of horrible situations with horrible uh, facts and 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 sympathetic plaintiffs that may right that may or may not. Uh, be able to you know, benefit from you know the uh, the the claims that they're they're pursuing here, and like you said, it's hard to tell from the record. It wasn't quite you know there's nothing in the record like you said to indicate that there's prior conduct. And like you said, if he had had prior conduct where he was convicted, I, I don't know how you would get a license, you know, unless you completely you know uh, lied and those are not the produced. those are not the kind of claims that are not the kind of convictions that get expunged, right? No, <laughs> and so. So, so, you know, I think it's a valid presumption that, that this is the first go around and, you know, it's, it's horrendous, but, uh, it'll be an interesting case to watch. And like you said, that's, uh, I think Indiana is somewhat unique in this, in this kind of comp fund. And like you said, the upper limits, they, know, they've had Illinois. it for, they've had it for nearly 50 years um, I know, and it's, it's been challenged multiple times. It's withstood constitutional challenge. Um, yeah. it's a system that they brought in in the mid seventies and, uh, it's endured and expanded, and and it's it hasn't reduced the number of claims. No, no, the size of them, but not the number right. of them. Right, <laughs> right. And again, if if cases are good, then one point eight is not. You know, I mean, we just you know the nothing the, to sneeze at. Right, right. It's nothing to sneeze at, and and uh, you know, if that's the limits, that's what people are going to pursue and try to get. And uh, exactly. So interesting case. So with that, we'll take our first break and come back with uh, Perner Lichty versus Hobbs. We're back for segment two of episode 135 of the Podium and Panel podcast, and we're discussing a qualified immunity case. A woman walked into a park in Wisconsin and sat on a park bench in April of 2020. So a month after the pandemic started near a baseball game to play Pokemon go. She claimed <laughs> she open carried a nine millimeter handgun and a rifle and the rifle had a bayonet. The police were called. They arrested her for disorderly conduct. There's some other details that Dan will get into, but that's the basics. She sued that her arrest was unlawful under the first and 14th amendment. The first amendment dealt with her recording of them. That, but let's, we're going to really focus on the Fourth Amendment issue. And the district court granted summary judgment to the officers, finding that they were protected by qualified immunity. That is the fact pattern to be considered when the Seventh Circuit decides Perner Lichty versus Hobbs. It's in Wisconsin, the disorderly conduct statute, following another circumstance where a person was arrested for open carrying a gun, where, a, where you're allowed to open carry a gun in Wisconsin, has been amended to state that it is not a violation to open carry a gun nor is it a violation to open carry a knife. So the question is, what happens when you put the knife and the gun together? Which is what she did. Yeah. 
and walk into a park where there are children <laughs> right after the pandemic and everybody's kind of on edge. Is it well established that such an arrest is unconstitutional? Dan, tell us about this oral argument. Sure, Pat. And uh, uh, for a couple of things, the, the statute, as Pat said, in, in uh, Wisconsin says, whoever in a public or private place engages in violent, abusive, indecent, profane, boisterous, unreasonably loud, or otherwise disorderly conduct uh, is guilty of a Class B misdemeanor. Section 2 says, um, unless other facts and circumstances that indicate a criminal or malicious intent on the part of the person apply, a person is not a violation and may not be charged with a violation of this section for loading a firearm or for carrying or going armed with a firearm or a knife without regard to whether the firearm is loaded or, or the firearm or the knife is concealed or openly carried. And so one one uh, thing that was being asked about and that, that the appellant, um, uh, the, this lady, uh, her lawyer argued, uh, was, was one consideration. And again, we don't have a picture of this bayonet, but it was uh, uh, bayonet. If you look up a bayonet, it's sometimes referred to as a knife, sometimes referred to as a sword. Um, uh, you know, as Pat and I talked and getting ready for the show, and when he called about this qualified immunity case, we've done a lot of qualified immunity. Um, you know, when you have a bayonet on the end of a rifle, there, there's a, 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 a certain uh, thing there, right? It's, 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 it's and, and, you know, the, the uh, argument of, the, uh, of her lawyer was that if, you know, the, the rifle could shoot somebody, you know, at a quarter mile or whatever it is, uh, but the bayonet would be hand-to-hand combat. Uh, one thing that I think is is important to know, and that that her lawyer conceded. Uh, but if you look up uh, Lidke, uh and, and her, she's got a YouTube channel where she has a number of these encounters with police, and she uh, is is a private or was a private security officer. I forget what the name of the entity is that hires her. In addition to what Pat said, she, so she had a gun. She also had what looked like uh, a Milwaukee Sheriff's Office a belt on uh, that had everything except for a few things. It didn't have a, a, the uh, a baton, uh, but what it did have was pepper spray. She had handcuffs. And uh, as Pat said, again, if you look at the YouTube video, and in this case, uh, and I'll read a little bit of the uh, district court case decision uh, as they describe her. Plaintiff is an adult female who resides in the city of West Ellis and is employed as a private security officer. Plaintiff sometimes openly carries firearms in public. She believes that by openly carrying our firearms, she will bring attention to the Second Amendment. When plaintiff openly carries firearms, she also carries a portable police scanner because people frequently call the police to report that she's carrying a firearm in public. People call 911 when plaintiff is openly carrying because they are concerned about somebody walking down the road openly carrying a gun. Uh, plaintiff admits that when she openly carries firearms, it causes a disturbance in her neighborhood. For example, on October 29, 2019, plaintiff had contact with the West Ellis Police Department after they were called about her openly carrying an AR-15 rifle in Rainbow Park in the city of West Ellis. So this is the same park. Uh, on February 23, 2020, plaintiff had contact with the Wauwatosa Police Department when she was openly carrying a rifle. And so, uh, you know, as as we've talked about on this show before, you know, one of the things that happens with 
uh, with, with uh, uh, qualified immunity cases is, is that you ha have to show um, uh, that uh, there was something that's, that, that should make people aware that whatever they're doing is a violation. We've, we've talked about it, and I've, I've, I've judged moot court competitions where there's uh, firing of employees for certain things. We've talked about police, Pat and I, in all kinds of contexts, you know, of, of uh, uh, the one police officer that we covered a case, I believe, uh, shot somebody uh, that, that had a knife and threw it at him, right? It, was, it wasn't it a case, Pat, we covered some time ago where the, the uh, bad guy threw a knife at the police officer yes, and he shot yes, him. Yes, yes, yeah. right. And, the question was, did, when did it occur? When did it occur? He didn't have his camera on. Um, yeah, and, and, so, and, and, and so in this case, um, like Pat said, there's a baseball game going on. It's the community park. People are out and about. And, and like I said, uh, from both the district court case uh, and, and the case up in Wisconsin, the, the, the original case, um, as well as, again, if you look up YouTube, I think the day after this event occurred, she was walking down the street again middle of the street blocking traffic or alleged to block traffic. It's a weird video to watch because it's, I think it's her, but it, but it's, it's, you don't see her. You see like just the open road, you see cars occasionally parked on the, on the road. Um, and again, she, she, uh, if you read about her, she, she admittedly, uh, like I said, from the district, from the, the Wisconsin court action that had occurred, uh, uh, she intends to, uh, kind of bring attention and to uh, show, especially with this very uh, broad uh, uh, open carry law that exists in Wisconsin. As Pat said, there was a case that existed. Uh, I've got it in my notes somewhere here. Uh, but that, this statute was changed after this also case. Also from the same town. Same town. And, and in that case. person, same right, town. Same town. And so the Wisconsin legislature, after this guy was arrested for uh, having a similar type of, of weapon uh, out in public, uh, they changed the law so that that's not a disturbance. And again, it's a class B misdemeanor. Um, the language that I read uh, does talk about if there's a, the threats of violence or anything. And as Pat said, one of the things that uh, she claimed she was doing was playing Pokemon Go. Uh, the the police officers and, and the prosecutors said that was impossible. There was debate from her attorney about uh, she was playing it and then she had to switch hands because she was taping the police officers, as Pat mentioned, uh, her First Amendment uh, you know, rights and whether they were violated. Um, and, and so there's a debate about whether she's playing Pokemon Go um, uh, or what was going on. Uh, but in any event, um, the... Um, uh, even the judge said, you know, if she was playing Pokemon Go, that seems impossible. I don't know how to, but then he said, I don't know how to play. <laughs> the record said it was impossible. Um, and, and the, yeah, she and the, couldn't videotape and play Pokemon Go. I mean, you have yeah. sometimes when, because the you can't have the, you can't run the two apps at the same time is the idea. Yeah. So yeah. She, that's what she claimed she was doing before she uh, began to tape and the, and the police officers uh, approached her. And, and Judge Kirsch then followed up those questions about uh, Pokemon Go and the whole, you know, whether she was wearing garb and what the call, the 911 call only said that they saw a rifle. Um, and then Judge Kirsch's uh, follow-up was what should the police have done? 
Um, it seemed like she wanted to be arrested, he, he said, reading between the lines. Uh, it was a Sunday afternoon. She drew attention, which should have been done. Um, the um, one thing that, the, that the, the attorney said, and I don't know if, if it was genuine or not, um, she still probably would have had a claim or, or made a claim, but again, we don't know. Uh, but he said that they could have just talked to her and, and seen what was going on. They could have done nothing and just walked away. Um, the, um, the, you know, the, the, they, 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 uh, had an interview with her. She wasn't under arrest. They told her to put the, put the gun down. Uh, and again, the, the, the judge followed up with, you could have had an interview and left well enough alone. Um, uh, the call said only the rifle, not the bayonet. Um, you know, and again, um, the, 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 the question that went on and kind of back and forth was again, to arrest somebody for disorderly conduct, you need probable cause, right? And whether the bayonet was on the gun or not, uh, that under the statute that we read in this, Pat introduced this case, you know, the, the, there's, uh, you can carry both a gun and you can carry a knife again, whether this is a knife or something else, you know, a bayonet can be a knife. So, um, the, Appelli then talked about, uh, um, uh, again, the entitlement to qualified immunity in the case. Um, the uh, district court did find that both of the police officers were entitled to qualified immu immunity. Um, they, remember, they said they arrested her because of the bayonet, not because of the right. Right, right. Because of the, what was on right. the gun. Yeah, and, and, and what the, what, what the, the uh, person for the, the city uh, and the appellee talked about was, you know, you have a woman here presenting oddly. And, and like you said, Pat, not only the assault rifle, but the bayonet, there's cases like Gonzalez, um, you know, they don't have briefs in, in Westlaw, which of the reasonable officers have done. You have to look at the context of the warm, sunny afternoon, uh, uh, first Sunday of the pandemic in April. Um, she has a history of being arrested. Um, you know, she, she, uh, faced with circumstances, like you said, Pat, it wasn't arrest for the rifle; it was the bayonet. Um, the and when they and both police officers were interviewed about the case, again, when they were uh, why they arrested her, they said it was because of the bayonet, not the gun. Um, they they told her the bayonet was not acceptable. Um, the uh, so so according to the appellee. Uh, the, the police officers are approximate cause to believe that there was disorderly conduct here. Um, and, and the other thing I think that, that uh, uh, was, was something that came up in the oral argument and it wasn't very long, Pat, but that, that was uh, a little bit comical uh, was, was that she claimed the reason for the bayonet was because she had heard reports of coyotes uh, in Rainbow Park and that the, the, um, uh, the, the appellee kind of, knock that down. He said a couple things. One, coyotes are nocturnal animals, you know, and, uh, they may be nocturnal. They may not, maybe nocturnal. I have seen them on the lakefront. I have to running in the morning during the day. Yeah. yeah. They're nocturnal. Yeah. Trust me. I'm still staying away from them, but they are, I, they are, they are around during the day. They, they, they can be. Uh, but that, the other thing with coyotes in general, we, we have them up in our neighborhood right now and little foxes because we're, we live by the forest preserve where I'm at. Um, for the most part, coyotes are not uh, predatory on humans. They're very nervous and stay away. Not like a wild e. coyote and the roadrunner. They they kind of stick away when they see you. 
but in any event, that was what she claimed. The uh, um, and the other thing is 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 Judge Jackson asked some good questions. Um, that's the that's the usual arrangement. Yeah, and and you know one of the one of her concerns was you know is the court supposed to come back on every slight modification to the firearm uh, in a jurisdiction where expanded gun rights and have expansive open carry? Uh, the uh, Pelly's attorney said, well, you know, a different stock that that wasn't uh, adding a weapon in and of itself. Uh, he talked about a scope, nothing would change, but he talked about a, a grenade launcher uh, that that's got a different context. And so um, he talked about flamethrowers as well. Um, you can attach uh, both of those guns to both those things to a uh, to a, a rifle of this kind. rifle as well. And, and and then you know the the, the yeah and, and the and, and the uh, the the final thing is is that the the thing about this and again with qualified immunity uh, the the standard um, you know there has to be well well established law um, one of the things that was asked and that that the appellee lawyer mentioned is that in all the research there's not a single other bayonet case in any state in the union uh, again. Because most people, you know, honestly, you don't see too many people out in public, no matter if they have their open, you know, uh, open carry. Not too many people have a, a bayonet attached to, their, to, to any gun. So it's a bit unusual fact pattern. We may not ever see one of these again. And so it'll be interesting to see what the Seventh Circuit does with this one. So, so a couple things, Dan. First of all, um, I, on the flamethrower and the grenade launcher, I thought that was a bit of a red herring. Because yeah. grenade launchers and flamethrowers aren't listed amongst the things you can carry and not be a disorderly conduct. Trust right. me, you carry a grenade launcher, that's disorderly conduct. Um, so I, I don't, I didn't understand what the comparison was. I understood his point. It was a bad point. Yeah, um, I, I agree. I agree with you. Yeah. Now, I, thought, now, I thought it was bad analogies. Yep. Yeah, but he didn't have much to go on. Are, he didn't have much to go on, right? Yeah, exactly. Those are different. Those are different yeah. uh, entirely. So the the real the issue is is. You know, there isn't a case. Okay, so appellants comes like, yeah, but there's a statute. There was a statute right. passed directly to deal with this situation. They've got to know if she's supposed to know the law, and she obviously did. They've got to know the law. Um, and and one other thing. So so my my father served in the um in in the army. He was in the reserves in, in the Vietnam era. Um, and, and his favorite, he's a, he's an Eagle Scout. So the only thing they taught me how to do in the in the in the army was to uh, to shoot a gun. Um, uh, apparently, they also taught him how to use a bayonet. I said you had to have had bayonet training um, as part of your. He says, "Oh yeah," and, and they're, they're, it's a frightening weapon. I mean, it really is. A, it really is a frightening weapon. And I, 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 I I've mentioned this before. I I, I, I might be uh, you know somewhat of a an advocate of the Second Amendment, but even I kind of blushed at the idea of someone walking. Open. First of all, I think open carry is a, is a terrible idea, but it, <laughs> for, for a whole variety of reasons. Um, but uh, why are you giving up your tactical advantage? Um, but because you're the first person that's going to get shot if 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 stuff happens, so don't do that. It's a bad idea. But walking around with a bayonet is is really. I mean, that's just un, it, around children. Just seems like a, a tremendously bad idea. And if 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 she was really up to no good, which it doesn't seem she was up to no good, she was she's a provocateur it seems, uh, for her position, and uh, she's accomplished her goal it seems. Uh, is if the if she had been up to no good and had 
decided to do something to harm someone. Can you imagine if the police didn't respond or let her go? You know, and so, you know, if I'm the cop, I'm going, even if I, even if you find me liable, I, I can't allow someone to walk around with a rifle and a nine millimeter and a bayonet around children in a public park. Right. I, I, you know, sue me, go ahead. I, I'm still going to have to, you're going to have to move. You, you can't, you can't do that. Um, and, and I say that you, you, you know, oftentimes we talk about, are you able to exercise two rights at one time, which is what she's doing essentially when she adds the bayonet to the gun. Guns are allowed. Knives are allowed. Are gun knives allowed? Yes, it seems. But even still, did they have probable cause under those circumstances to say, because that's the standard. Did they have probable cause to arrest her for it? And I have a hard time thinking they didn't because it's, it's a really, and the courts really said that's a hard time under those circumstances in the context of it in isolation. Sure. But under those facts, I, I have a hard time blaming the police officers for doing what they did. We hear a lot of things about police officers doing bad things. I'm not so sure the police officer did anything wrong here. Uh, but we'll see what the Seventh Circuit has to say on the topic. An entertaining right. case, to say the least. For um, sure. And it raises some very interesting issues. Even fortunately, nothing awful like what happened in the first case uh, happened here uh, because you know she seems to have a political point to make, which she's doing. But uh, it raises interesting legal issues in the context where people hopefully aren't being hurt. Uh, so with that, we'll take our next break and come back with uh, Rojas versus Martel. Hey, Podium and Podcast listeners. If you want to get in touch with the show, you can drop us a line at podiumandpanelpodcast at gmail.com. Please let us know about cases you're interested in or guests you'd like us to interview. You can also follow Dan and I on LinkedIn, as well as the Podium and Panel podcast page on LinkedIn. We look forward to hearing from you. Welcome back to segment three of episode 135 of the Podium and Panel podcast. And we uh, have the case with the move. A day after the Illinois Supreme Court exercised its supervisory authority and moved a swath of cases from the 4th District to the other appellate districts as a public necessity that Their court heard oral arguments. Yeah, yeah. And Rojas versus Martel appealed from the Circuit Court of Winnebago, where one of the questions is whether second district precedent is binding in the consideration of the case. The supervisory order noted that public necessity so requires the move when the General Assembly redrew the appellate districts and moved Winnebago County, among many other counties from the second district to the fourth district, the Illinois Supreme Court entered an order addressing that change. Counsel for the appellant in Rojas argued that second district precedent was binding, but Justice Steigman pushed back, asserting that a second district case was not even binding on the second district. So how could it be binding on the justices of the fourth district? Substantively, the case concerns whether an employer can escape a finding of damages for the employee failing to mitigate damages when she refuses to take a job from the same employer that was found to have discriminated against her and the job she refused to take that would have allegedly mitigated her damages was the very one that she was transferred to that was the basis for the d- discrimination claim in the first place. Pat, tell us about oral argument in this interesting case and the order that uh, the Supreme Court put in place. So for those that recall, um, there was a, 
a redrawing of the appellate districts in uh, in Illinois. And the only district that wasn't affected was Cook County, or sorry, the first district, which remained just Cook County. All of the other districts were substantially revised in one way or the other. They got smaller in the case of the second district, and they got larger, substantially larger in the case of the fifth and the fourth districts. Yeah. Um, and this was done for political reasons um, to set to get what ultimately occurred, which was a supermajority of Democrats on the Illinois Supreme Court, five five to two. Um, and so, at a time when it looked like the Republicans might have been able to take a majority, uh, if the if the districts had remained static, the legislature redo the districts for the first time since 1964, and uh, which is their prerogative. And they and the result was what they were looking for, which was a, a supermajority in the Illinois Supreme Court. So, in response to that, the Supreme Court needed to set rules for what do we do. So we've got these cases that were pending in one judicial district, our appellate district, and now they're going to go to a different appellate district. Uh, what do we do? And so they issued an order that said that if the cases were in the second district or whatever district they were from, that when they go to the new district then they're controlled by the precedent from the district from whence they came. Fine. But so what? Illinois has one appellate district. It has five, or has one, I should say, has one appellate court with five districts. That's, let me right. say that properly. They are not binding on each other. So, and nor is it by, nor is a panel of the first district binding on another panel of the first district. Indeed, it's not even binding on that same panel of the first right. district if they're presented with the same issue. As we've the seen. only court, the only court that's binding on everybody is the Illinois Supreme Court and the Supreme Court of the United States on issues of uh, where the Supreme Court of the United States has authority, uh, which on occasion occurs in, in in Illinois state courts because they're courts, of course, of general general. Uh, subject matter jurisdiction. So the <laughs> so counsel for the appellant said, well, there's binding second district precedent. And you have to follow it. And Justice Steigman's like, no, I don't. I don't have to follow anything. Um, I could do what I want. The only thing I have to follow is the, is the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court hasn't spoken on this issue. So stop saying binding. You said it once. I let it go. You said it again. And I'm calling you on it. it, it it's not working. Uh, so I uh, because there's a case that the, the lawyer for the appellate really likes. Um, really haven't gotten to the bottom of why these cases were moved from the fourth district to the other districts. Uh, it, it, there isn't a really, the, the order references uh, this, this order, this recent order from this week references, there's a list of cases, but that wasn't made public. So we don't know how many were moved um, or where they were moved to. But I will say, there, that is a substantial change. If you're going from one appellate district to another, uh, the fourth district has a certain character to it that you may have prepared your briefs and your strategy for that now you're changing <coughs> and you are in a whole different world if you were getting moved to a different appellate district. Uh, depending on which district that is, you don't know. You moved to the first, did you move to the second? Uh, it, it's going to, you know, the third, the fifth, you don't know. Uh, and it's really, uh, it's, it's really going to ruin some people's lives, <laughs> their lives very difficult, yep. uh, right. as appellate lawyers. So I don't, I'm not aware of an order like that ever having been entered before, um, or the reason for such an order, but, 
uh, there it is. So substantively, this lady worked for a uh, health authority in Winnebago County. Winnebago County is Rockford for those that are, so North Central Illinois. Uh, and she was a nurse and she worked in a, with children and she gets moved to a nursing home run by the county where she's going to have to really work for a living now, as opposed to working, working with, she's going to be working with geriatric patients as opposed to children. And as I say, she's really going to have to work for a living bedpans, the whole thing. She don't want to do it. And she claims that they're making her do this for some basis of discrimination. It was unclear to me, Dan, what the discrimination was. It seemed it might have been religious in nature, but I, I, I couldn't really tell. It, it didn't seem to be racial or, or or gender or national origin. I think it was some religious-based discrimination. It wasn't able to tell, but it didn't really matter. Because the issue is, because there's cross appeals here, and the cross appeal is not on. So she's appealing that her damages were entirely eliminated because she didn't take this substitute job and therefore was found not to have mitigated her damages, the principal damages of which are the loss of her or reduction in her pension from the county by not taking this other job. So she ends up, yes, you win, you have discrimination, but you have no damages, you lose. The cross appeal is not on the discrimination. The cross appeal deals with whether she, um, remind me what the, I forget what the cross appeal is. It's really kind of the tail wagging the dog, but it's there's a cross appeal on another issue. It's not relevant. Right. In any event, the real issue is, 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 does she have to take this job where the whole basis for moving her there was the discrimination that she claimed she was being discriminated against, and that's why they were moving her uh, to this other job that she didn't want to take. So it, it presents a number of very interesting issues, um, which is why we, we wanted to discuss it. And uh, we'll see how, uh, how how this shakes out. Dan, what are your thoughts on this case? Yeah, I, 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 I kind of read the same thing, Pat. It seemed like the discrimination here was some form of religious, which is unclear exactly what a, that, that is. Uh, but, uh, you know, it's a, an interesting case. And, and like you said, uh, it's very it can be very confusing at times. Illinois, it's a little bit different. Like Indiana only has one Indiana appellate court there's not the divisions i think iowa only has one well they um, they used to indiana used to have uh districts um, they did and, right. they got, and they got and they got rid of that uh they just have yeah. one they have one appellate court illinois has one appellate court just divides it up i know i know right <laughs> and, and and in in the first district which is cook county there's i think five is there five six. panels six divisions six, six, six divisions. divisions of of six divisions of four justices each yeah so they rotate, and so we've we've covered many of those panels on on the podium and panel podcast. Where, like you said, it's not binding because part of it's because it's three different justices out of the four, and then they rotate every eighteen months or something, so that there's not so they don't get stuck in the sixth division, so that's not just a four pack of, you know, whatever they rule on. So that 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 uh, adds to the, to the interesting part of Cook County for sure. Um, yep. So it'll be interesting to see what happens with this case. And, uh, you know, the, the, these cases, uh, you know, I I was thinking the, the pension, I, I've done a couple of cases in the past, one for a, a church and some other things where it was, you know, low, low level labor and, and, and not very high cost. And so the damages in these cases are not usually significant because, 
you know, I, I mean, again, I, I'm making the assumptions here, but if, if she's doing these types of labor, probably the pension's not that significant. You know, she's not making significant uh, dollars like, like an but executive. She's, so. But because it's a pension, she hasn't been paid into Social Security. Right. And so it, she she's now got, I mean, she's not going to get her full pension and she's not going to get full Social Security. She's really, and if she's an older person or approaching yeah. retirement, then that could be got, significant. Yeah. That's really significant. She's not going to have any retirement. That's a problem. Yeah. Although, uh, although a lot of pensions, you still, you're still paying the social security. So, uh, right. my son's now works at IRS and there's three different pieces. There's social security, there's a pension, and then there's the 403 B plan or whatever. similar right. to 401k. But, uh, yeah, like you said, it'll impact though, because, and especially if she's not working, she's not going to get those final quarters, um, you know, in, in highest quarters. So yeah, it can have an impact, but, uh, interesting case to watch. In, indeed. So that brings us to our, uh, BI for COVID. Uh, Dan, why don't you tell us about this? Yeah, the only thing that I think happened last week, and maybe I'm wrong, but, I, you know, again, COVID just kind of goes in spells now. Uh, the California uh, Supreme Court was asked to consider a virus exclusion in the COVID case. A federal appeals court uh, asked uh, via a certification of a question uh, whether a virus exclusion uh, in, in Napa Valley restaurant, the French Laundry, uh, coverage is enforceable. And what's interesting about this case is that uh, this French laundry case was, in my mind, was pretty early in the pandemic. It was one of the first ones out in California. So I don't know what's been going on with this case and what's taken so long, but uh, uh, that's what's happening. And uh, uh, we'll so, see so, if the so California Supreme Court takes it. So there's two things. This is the second certified question in just a couple weeks from the Ninth Circuit to the California Supreme Court. And number two, Everyone will remember the French Laundry from the from the uh, from the pandemic because this is where Gavin Newsom, the governor, got himself in trouble for going That's to dinner right. when no one else could go. This right. is the restaurant he went to in Napa right. Valley, the t- very right. Tony restaurant that uh, he got caught on camera eating at That's when right. no one else could eat out. Meanwhile, he gets to go have his you know right you know many he thousand can, dollar can. dinner. Uh, it was a right. birthday party for one of his children or something. That's right, uh, and, and That's so. That. That's this this restaurant. Right. It's like this restaurant is going to be very tied with COVID if this case gets taken. And and unfortunately for him, his his laundry was aired. So no, indeed it was. It was was not a good. That was not a good news cycle for uh, for the governor. Not at all. All right. So that brings us to our prediction: sure to go wrong. Uh, Dan is ninety-seven and a half, forty-four and a half, and eleven. I am 190. Did I say 97 and 197? Yeah, I'm probably and a half, 97. 44 and a half at 11. I am 195 and a half, 46 and a half at 11. Uh, and the only case we had this week was Tom versus Miller. Uh, so this is the second time we've talked about this case. Uh, different set of lawyers this time for the plaintiff. Same set of lawyers as the defendant. This is the case where they filed in St. Clair County or Madison County. They voluntarily dismiss. They refile. They try to refile or they in St. Clair County doesn't work because they didn't pay the fee. They then go try to refile. They then try to file again. They hit the button wrong and they file actually successfully in Sangamon County. <laughs> On the first appeal, they, they got a court to grant them transfer plaintiff to transfer to form under form nonconvenience to St. Clair County, the appellate court reversed. So on take number two, they say, 
you need to look at Supreme Court Rule 9, D as in dog, uh, 2. And, the, and, and this gives us dispensation where there's a clerical error. And the court said, that's great, but it was St. Clair County that should have resolved this issue, not Sangamon. You went to the wrong court, and you didn't raise it timely. And you, I, I got to think these people are out of the box now um, because this is their second appeal, and I don't know if they're going to have uh, any other opportunities. So now that it's going to be left as a legal malpractice case to go with the underlying medical malpractice case. So we'll have a case within a case. Um, it's, it's kind of, a, uh, it's kind of unfortunate, um, that this is how this is going to work out. But yeah, two appeals later, this is where we're at. Um, and we got that one, right. Uh, which brings us to our prediction sure to go wrong for this week. Uh, Indiana department of insurance versus Doe. I think this is getting affirmed, Dan. What are your thoughts? I, I think it's affirmed. Uh, Perner Lichty versus Hobbs affirmed. I think it's affirmed. And Rojas versus Martel. That's going to get affirmed too, right? Yeah, I think all three get affirmed this week. I think I think this is an all this is a an all three get affirmed week, which brings us to uh, the rule of the week. Uh, Dan, you dredged this one up. Sorry, Corey Webster. We keep we're finding someone our own. Uh, right. we, we 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 appreciate the help, but we 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 found someone our own. Dan, tell us about the rule of the week. And, it, and it's somewhat related to what we talked about earlier, Pat, with the Supreme Court of Illinois going from to a supermajority uh, based on redistricting. Uh, and this this has to do with the case we talked about, I think, briefly on here. And I've talked about it extensively in my column. Uh, it's the case of Moore versus Harper. This is the independent state legislature case that uh, says uh, that uh, courts are not able to get involved in uh, determining uh, elections and stuff. It's up to the legislatures of the state. Uh, the Supreme Court in November, I think it was, heard Moore versus Harper, uh, the Supreme Court of the United States. And so the question here is, is we had a similar flip in the North Carolina Supreme Court, which was where Moore versus Harper comes from. Uh, and, and the question is, what happens when the North Carolina Supreme Court after election in November of last year changed from a 4-3 Democratic majority to 5-2 Republican? Uh, this new court uh, just started uh, recently, uh, and uh, this court agreed to a motion for rehearing in Moore versus Harper. Um, and again, uh, because of the change in the lineup, uh, the 4-3 decision back in, in 2020, I believe it was, or 2021, that went to the Supreme Court uh, was a 4-3 decision. The three um, uh, Republicans dissented in that case. Uh, the case for rehearing uh, was 5-2 with the two remaining Democrats uh, uh, dissenting. And so the, the, the kind of rule of the week here is what happens uh, if the North Carolina Supreme Court decides the case before the Supreme Court does and, and reverses. And what happened was the North Carolina state uh, said, uh, no, the, the courts can get involved in this redistricting and address these things when legislation is bad or it violates the Constitution. North Carolina Constitution has a provision in place about redistricting and how it has to take place and all this stuff. And so um, one of the things that, that probably happened, we talked about a, a dismiss as improvidently granted. What happens in this situation is that if this case is decided uh, before June, which is when uh, more would probably come out in the cycle, then... Uh, there's a real issue and question here of whether the case is now moot because uh, the court will have an opposite answer uh, at the North Carolina Supreme Court. Um, and then 
uh, what will probably happen is that that case will be immediately appealed uh, by um, uh, those uh, uh, up to the Supreme Court of the United States, but it'll be a reverse answer for the court to have to answer. Um, and if you listen to the oral argument of the Supreme Court, uh, it seemed like they were going to come up with probably a narrow uh, ruling. Uh, Amy Coney Barrett seemed to be the one that might might be the majority opinion, but it'll probably be dismissed as, as moot. And this is uh, the topic of my uh, column for Monday in the, the Chicago Daily Law Bulletin. Uh, I asked the question because I, I do Mondays, as Pat knows, whether Monday was a holiday, but I looked at my prior uh, articles and I think Lincoln's birthday is not a, a publishing holiday, uh, but the following week President's Day will be, so I won't uh, have anything in the next week's uh, papers. But that's a topic of, of my article and how this all kind of changed, and so it'll be interesting to see uh, it's a, how fast the North Carolina court rules on this. Usually you have a race to the courthouse. This time it's a race to a judgment. Uh, yeah. the, the judges are in a, the justices of the two Supreme Courts are in a race with each other, uh, trying to see who can decide it first. Uh, you, know, you know, yeah. And what's interesting there, about the, what's sorry, interesting about this is as well, Pat, is is the it, is, is the timeline because usually uh, there and there was some complaints that this was uh, late, uh, but the North Carolina Supreme Court said that you know if there's errors in decisions, and again. You know, this is one of the things that I think um, even uh, Chief Justice Roberts in June Medical, uh, when he concurred, I, it, it was his concern that the, the only thing that changes uh, is the court's makeup and that you have a, a totally different decision on, on the same facts. Uh, but that's that's what's good. You know, just like in Illinois now, we've got a supermajority versus what we used to have. And like you said, it could have been the other way. So it's just an interesting, interesting uh situation is there, and is there precedent for let's suppose the court the, the supreme court let's, let me be clear what supreme court i'm talking about supreme court of the united states when they know the north carolina court is considering this could they just kick it this to the next term wait for north carolina to decide what they're going to do now that they've taken up the case again so that they don't decide a case that is you know rendered moot that's my first yeah, question. They're, yeah and they and, don't have and to decide by that, if they don't want to no, the, the answer to that is is they they could very well uh, issue issue an order that just says that they're going to kick it over, um, uh, or 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 set a rehearing. You know, Brown versus Board was reheard. Yeah, there have sure. been other cases, but even in recent terms, there have been cases yeah. that have, have been like that where uh, they heard oral argument and then there's been an intervening fact pattern or intervening facts, and they push it. So or that, a new justice again, added to the court. If I remember the last one that they reheard, yeah, right? Because uh, Justice Barrett came on the court and they reheard the case because they right. think they realized they were going to be four four. So let's get a let's get a ruling done. And so they reheard yep. the case once Justice Barrett joined the court because uh, she joined you know shortly after the term had begun, but the case had already been argued. Um, the other thing is is I, I I do find it crazy that they decided we're just gonna we're just gonna rehear this um, <laughs> two years after we read in our opinion. That's crazy. Right. I, it okay. is. It is. So much but for again, jurisdiction. It's... Yeah. Right. Yeah, um, yeah. Usually, the uh, uh, the the motion for rehearing and consideration is very close to the time. It's but there's some it's thirty-five days typically, right? At least in Illinois, there's there's some right. There, there, there's some reporting that um, 
Uh, some some I'm sorry, were concerned 21, about 21 21 sorry it's 21 21 yeah yeah and, and and there was some reports that that there was some concern uh in the GOP about where this case might go or what the result might be at the Supreme Court so this this may be a way to to change the fact patterns and see if it, it, it you know if it goes back to the Supreme Court so it'll be interesting to watch very interesting a very important case um and, uh, and we'll see what happens. Uh, with that, yeah. uh, we'll take our leave. Thank you, everybody, for joining us this week. We'll see you next week on the Podium and Panel Podcast. I'm Dan Cotter, and on behalf of my co-host, Pat Eckler, we thank you for listening and look forward to having you join us again. Please follow us on LinkedIn and read our columns in the Chicago Daily Law Bulletin. Please join us again at the podium and panel. Each episode on the podium and panel podcast, we will cover several oral arguments and decisions in civil matters at the Illinois Appellate Court and Illinois Supreme Court, with the occasional coverage of SCOTUS and other appellate courts. The purpose of the podcast is to inform of developments that may affect business and are not to be considered legal advice. They do not create a lawyer-client relationship. Information on previous case results do not guarantee a similar future result. The opinions are their own and do not reflect those of the firms for which they work or their clients.